your office or you're just chilling out. This is the ESOP guy, and we are on a journey to an ESOP. So excited to be with you. We are on a journey to an ESOP and beyond. We've entered the realm of season five. I'm very, very happy you can join us today. For those that are don't know what this is all about, this is an employee stock ownership plan podcast. This is a resource that we provide so that you can better understand the whether or not an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, might be a good fit for your company. That could be you as a shareholder. That could be you as a key employee of the team, whomever, whomever you are, wherever you find yourself. Um, I'm so thankful that you could join us today. song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy, in every life we have some trouble, when you worry, and then life you have some trouble, but don't worry, you're on the ESOP Guy podcast, yeah, all right, till I slaughtered Bobby McFerrin's song, but this is this is so cool. This is today is don't worry, be happy day. The holistic plan for your ESOP. And just, okay, first off, I can just give lots and lots of like credit to every once in a while in life, there's this, this song that comes about that everybody just loves. And if you don't like this song, then I'm sorry for whatever reason. But it's it's so, like I think it's so true in terms of, of just, we need to not worry, right? And it's so rooted in, especially in the world that we live in, but but deeper than that, you know, the ESOP world, as we talk about it, is, is I think just because the stress related to selling your stock of your company. Now, of course, that applies to anything. And, and I would compare, as you talk about this topic in, you know, from the intro side, I would just compare like an ESOP is the least, um, anxious moment of selling your company. Um, and I, and I've got some things to talk about when it comes to that. So, but at the the same time, it's still a process of transition and change and disruption. And I want to get into that today because I want to nail down why you should not worry, man, and be happy. And so part of that is because you do what what you do is you try to create a holistic plan that really works. So that's the topic today. I hope you're, um, is you're driving or whatever you're doing, I'm just happy to spend a little time with you and hope this really helps you on your journey to an ESOP. One of the things as we as we start this, you know, just want to keep reminding people, go to our website if you have any questions, journeytoanesop.com. There you can find all kinds of information. There are some things coming up in the in the year that we're going to be putting on the website. For one, we are speaking at the EOS Worldwide Conference in San Diego. That's coming up um, in April and super excited about that. There's another conference in April with the National Center of Employee Ownership. I'm speaking at that as well with uh, my good friend, Will Rodriguez with Vision Point Capital. So if you're going to Tampa in April with the NCEO or you're going to San Diego for the EOS conference, um, we'd love to get to meet you in person. So um, and you can always throw something in online. So you should see some of that in our website 
as you investigate the ESOP, as well as look at what podcasts might help you guys, you know, to, to really understand. There's a million um, topics. I'm exaggerating, but there's a lot of topics we've done over the, the last five seasons that I think are are very, very helpful to break all of this stuff down. So if you like the podcast, please rate and review it. Give us a five-star rating. And if you do have any friends, wonderful, and you know they're looking at selling their companies possibly to an ESOP, um, please send them this 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 podcast because I think it could be helpful to them as well. So don't worry, man. Be happy. So as we talk about this song, of course, it, the first thing I just want to say is like, you know, I, I love this song because it reminds me um, of things in life that we, we get stressed out about. And we've all been there, right? We get stressed out about things that are just like, they come and they go. And I had gone through a phase in my life where I think everything you know, and I don't know if you've ever lived this, but you just literally can't sleep at night. You're you're watching the ceiling fan if you have one in the middle of the night because you can't sleep. You get back and forth, and you're just like, "What's going to happen next?" Like, and most of that, if I if I related that, it could be anything, you know. Um, but my my experience it was much more business related, and it wasn't as much of like you know things that would be, of course. You know, some people's lives are just riddled with issues and problems health wise and all that. It wasn't really as much of that. It was more what's going to happen next. I was in charge of our company and I had um, just in this one season of life, I had this the, one of the offices just con- continually, you know, turn new people, mostly because we had um, large corporations coming in and just stealing all our employees. And I mean, literally. Um, there would be like every day, you're like, oh my gosh, we just lost somebody else and going through that whole phase of things. Of course, there's other other things that have kept me up before, but 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 then listening to the song, I'm like, what well, don't worry, be happy. I mean, because what happens in life is you move through those things and they and they do, you know, once you have experience at, like I've done, you know, I've gone through those things, I know it's gonna work out. And even if it doesn't work out the way I wanted it to, it's gonna work out because um you're committed to doing what you're doing. And and so I'm not trying to like pacify that, that type of thing or, or say, don't, you know, don't worry, just keep moving. You know, it is hard. Life is hard. There's a lot of things to deal with. And, but I think I'm trying to like, say there are sometimes you think that something's a big deal and it's, and it's really, really not. When it comes to the ESOP process, I want to kind of boil down things. And I think this is partly motivated by just experience at dealing with clients in the process of going through their ESOPs. Yeah. And also as I've done like some podcasts this year, but just about, you know, working with key, key people too, and knowing that the transition in change itself creates anxiety amongst people. And the goal that we have in terms of not just the podcast, because that's definitely part of our mission um, is and also in the ESOP process that we go through is the goal is really to help companies and key people, shareholders really understand what they're getting into and be educated on that so that they, they, they can minimize any potential anxiety that they have. And then from that, you know, provide and foster a confidence with this transition so that as they do talk about it with their key people and as they do talk about it with their employees, once that does come, so we're kind of moving from planning and pre-ESOP to post-ESOP type of issues, 
that there's like this, this is going to be just phenomenal for you guys. And this is why. And then part of the education, part of the process of, of preparing a company, shareholders, key people through the ESOP process for me as a sell side advisor is to help them be educated to answer questions that come. And what I love about my job is that you get to experience just an incredible spectrum of personalities when you get down to it. You know, from the extreme side of things where you have maybe an engineer by trade personality who literally needs to know every detail, every little nook and cranny, can't move to the next step until you they really fully understand it. Um, to the very end of the other side of the spectrum, which is the high type A person that makes quick decisions, they understand it, they, they grasp enough of the information to say, all right, let's move on, let's move on, let's move on. And so you have this big spectrum, but either way that the process that we go through needs to be created and intentional about educating and building confidence throughout the process, no matter what what personality type we have. And, and it gets a little more complicated than I'm, I'm making it out because, you know, you're going to have a team of people that you're working with on an ESOP transaction that could include that type A personality, um, high level decision maker to the, to the CFO or controller who's maybe very, very detail oriented. And so you're, and when we do this, what we want to do is make sure that we have the models in, that we need to support the business planning, decision-making process. Meanwhile, educating people on that. And the goal of all of this is to, of course, we want to do the ESOP transaction, but do it as we do it, make sure that there's this ongoing confidence. Now, recently, I would say recently by that meaning, it would be the last, say, two to three months. I've been contacted by people that are, they went with um, a, say, more like an investment banking type of sell-side advisor in their approach when, and it's kind of like, I'm like, fine, whatever, you know, whatever you do, like I've always said this on the podcast, I'm not here doing this podcast so that, you know, I can be the self-side advisor for everybody, right? That's not my goal. My goal is to help you ask the right questions and get into a situation where you have ESOP advisors that really surround you and provide the, this type of level of, and what I'm trying to do is create, you know, I guess a standard of an expectation that they should create for your entire team a holistic approach where everybody feels at the best possible level or more optimum level. Of course, this, this is a little idealistic, but everybody feels very confident. This is and then part of the process of doing that is I think they need to build consensus across the board. But one of the things that that happened over the last several months is I've been contacted by m- multiple companies that have gone with investment banking firms to do their ESOP transaction. And I know we've talked about this in different ways before, but I want to I want to make mention of this because it's predominantly the way a lot of ESOP transactions are are put together. And I do, you know, the more I've done this for years after years, I do think there's probably a few examples where that's a really good structure because there's a there's an, an intense capital raise that that's being created where you have, you know, this capital stack complexity that investment banking firms are going to be better at doing. But even fundamentally in that, I think that sometimes when you start looking at these very complicated capital type of structures for ESOPs, you're trying to, I think they're trying to make an ESOP into something that it's not supposed to be. Be happy. Don't worry, be happy. And I'm the best to lay.
your hand Somebody came and took your bed Don't worry Be happy The landlord say your rent is lit He may have to litigate Don't worry Be happy So as we talk about this <clears throat> The journey to being happy We you know, we're talking a little bit about the idea of, of who represents you on an ESOP transaction, and that's important. And as I was talking about it, like, again, I, I wanted to get into, like, this idea that what happens or what happened, and as, as I think about the last several months, is that it's usually the CFO or the controller that comes back and says, hey, I'm I'm not happy, right? I've got some things happening here within the deal that I'm a little uncomfortable with, and the reason for this that I believe is is systematic and a direct result of the design behind the way investment bankers go about that is because there is a significant um, lack of, of independence in that their approach to doing a transaction is to maximize their payout on the on the deal. I mean, they're. And I think this works really well, I think, in the sense, if you understand an investment banking firm's approach to doing an, a straight-up M&A transaction, if you win, they win. In an ESOP transaction, it doesn't really work that way because I think what happens is there's a lack of um, independence and there's a direct conflict of interest in how they're putting the deal together. So in these situations, what was happening is this investment banking firm, they really are pushing heavily on the 1042. And if you understand that 1042 is a, a very, very valid and and one of the when we talk about ESOP tax benefits, it's something that gets thrown around a lot. We talk about it a lot. And I think in appropriate times and places, it works really well. But what I guess the terminology would be for for whoever's putting the deal together, they should be solution agnostic in that sense they should be you know whether you go this direction or that direction it should not matter to them and i think the main thing is is that if they're going to earn a bunch of money on putting you in a 1042 because that's what they're doing um then they're not going to be independent and they're not going to and they're going to have this direct to me a direct conflict of interest and that is what's creating some some uncertainty and you know as we as we play on this song a little bit, the idea behind it, like that's going to create some anxiety when it comes, maybe not to the shareholder directly. And we talk about the spectrums of personality types, because maybe they're more, you know, high level, Hey, this makes sense, but it's certainly going to be some, some friction when it comes to the key people, probably the CFO or controller that, that are kind of in tandem working with the shareholder internally to work through the transaction. So so definitely when when you look at let me my advice here in this in just framing out the idea behind a, um whether you should use a 1042 or not my my advice is yeah look at it because you need to analyze all the possibilities. But if you're an S corporation and you have to convert to a C corporation and stay that for 5 years, well you should ask the question how much am I giving up in this transaction um or how much how much is the company giving up in tax benefit? in order for the shareholder to get the 1042. Secondly, more importantly, does the shareholder understand the complexity behind the 1042? And are, are they, does it work in their whole scheme of things when it comes to their estate plan? 
and all of those parts and pieces. And I think what happens is they, it gets so focused on, well, you're going to save this much money in capital gains tax because you're going to defer and potentially eliminate capital gains tax. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't use a 1042. I'm saying that if your sell side advisor does not create the, a, a model that shows you the multiple options, then you can't make a good business decision based on the pros and cons of each of these scenarios. And that happens time again and again and again because there are um, predominantly done. These ESOP deals are predominantly done by investment banking firms. The other thing I saw this last couple of months was in another deal where there's no consideration in post ESOP. And the CFO is very uncomfortable in the sense because this company has a requirement for all their, their contracts to be bonded or, or maybe a significant amount to be bonded, right? And so as they plow through all of the analysis, nobody's stopping. The sell-side advisor is not stopping and saying, hey, we need to make sure that the bonding company is approving this deal, like preliminarily, initially, early on, so that there's a consensus on the third parties not just to mention like not just the bonding company, but other other aspects like who else is going to be, what's going to happen to this company in post ESOP land. That has created a uh, an anxiety when it comes to the CFO. And, and this is what I'm saying in terms of, of making sure that you ask these questions early in the, in the process of hiring your sell-side advisor. How are they going to manage through these things? And I <clears throat> that's why when I come back to the approach to interviewing and hiring, you know, your, your, your team is make sure that you, if you're, if this is appropriate for the shareholder, cause sometimes it's not, you know, maybe it's not time to open up, you know, the can of worms of, Hey, I'm thinking about doing ESOP, but if it's appropriate, have your, your real heavy duty decision makers in your team, whether they're equity owners or not be in part of the process of interviewing and making that selection. And that's why I'm saying, you know, usually the team, you're going to have that whole spectrum of personalities that are going to be, you know, helpful to make the right decision. It, in some cases, it can feel like you're so deep and down, you know, far down the road with an advisor that it's too late. You just can't pull out. I know that that can maybe even be practically true as well. I've seen people do pull out, even though maybe they started off in the initial phase with with a, what they thought was, you know, a good approach. And I think some of this just comes because a lot of times you get a referral for somebody that's, that you have a friend who used them and they had a successful story behind it, but you don't maybe know all the intricacies of their deal until you get into it or, or how they're doing it. And I think too, what happens is nobody actually like once they've done it, they don't know anything else. So they're going to say, this was great. Even though they might've paid, you know, a couple million bucks in fees and they could have paid, you know, way less than that. You know, it's just, it just is what it is. So I, I wanted to kind of pinpoint that as we talk about this, because ultimately um, the holistic plan is to make sure that all of these pieces get put together so that your team um, the shareholder, the key people, the employees, the company, so that there's a there's a simultaneous win-win for everybody as time goes as it goes through the whole ESOP process in from pre-ESOP to post-ESOP in closing. 
one of the things about as we do the planning, and, and now we're going to get more into the some of the dynamics of, of ESOP planning itself that I think are really important. And if we break some of this out into the very beginning steps, I think one of the most important parts is validating the um, the, value, the valuation model. And what I mean by that is, let me just take it from a simplistic standpoint. If you come into this type of understanding, in the, and I mean you, the, share, the selling shareholder specifically at this point, and start thinking about um, your expected number, you know, and everybody's going to have some level, if they're thinking about selling their company as an ESOP, they're going to think about like their expected valuation, what that should be. In that, what has to happen is you have to kind of build this idea behind history and the future. <clears throat> and in the, you know, in this scheme of things, what we're trying to do is, is make sure that the shareholder or shareholders has a realistic understanding of, of business valuation, not just a multiple of EBITDA valuation. So it could be that the, the, what gravitates, what everybody gravitates to is trying to kind of back end um, a multiple of EBITDA that was an expected multiple of EBITDA um, by the shareholders for whatever reason. It could be, you know, super legitimate. They went through this whole process. They didn't, they've done valuations every year and everybody kind of has a sense for, for that. And so they already have this idea of multiple of EBITDA or maybe it's on the other extreme. It's completely just what they want. I mean, they want to get something that some number out of the deal. And this is where, when we talk about the expected, you know, number, what we have to do in an ESOP transaction is gravitate towards the cash flow side and the cash flow of the business. And when we say cash flow, let's, as we talk about cash flow, I've done this, we've talked about this in a lot of different angles, but ultimately what we mean is a normalized earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And usually that's an adjust an adjusted EBITDA. And then very, very importantly, next is to really estimate cap- capital expenditures. Some companies, their models are very capital intensive. And there's a lot of there's a lot of requirements in their business model um, for the continuation of, of spending cash flow on fixed assets to keep everything going. And that can that proves itself out historically, and it'll prove itself out in the forecast. And so the very first part of this, as we as we think about, you know, making sure the shareholder is happy, right? Don't worry, be happy. Is to really nail down what's realistic between the historical track history of five years and the forecasted um, expected track, you know, going forward for the next five years. And so one of the things about this this part of the valuation model that's really important is to vet that forecast with its hist- with the history of the company and alongside that vetting out the actual um, business plan in terms of all of its components when it comes down to things like the customer revenue, base related to recurring revenue, related to um, maybe contracts, whether they're 
short-term or long-term contracts or whether they're customers that buy each year based on a relationship that they built with the company, maybe specific to a person or maybe specific to a multiple departments. How, how are all those relationships in the revenue being represented when it comes down to the predictability of that revenue? Is there a lot of historical uh, ups and downs, peaks and valleys in the revenue, or has it been smooth and continuously growing in the history? And what we're trying to do is then take that financial and historical cash flow model in, in against the background of that, look at um, elements of their business plan and their business model that provide a process of vetting out the realistic nature of those future numbers. And that's that part of the process. I mean, I could go into, um, you know, what we just talked about customers and I could go into, you know, the, the change in gross margin or the change in cost of goods sold related to gross margin or, you know, historical GNA expenses, non-recurring GNA expenses, additional new GNA expenses that are that are absolutely required for us to get this thing up to the next level when it comes down to the the growth plan. So there's some some elements here of of the business plan, the business model that once we start with a very drafted for historic or forecast against a a very, you know, pr- you know, I would say an accounting of the historicals where the accounting is solid then I then I think the main goal here in terms of, of kneeling down with the shareholder is going to be the, the reliability of that forecast. As we as we use that to glean the discounted cash flow enterprise value, the forecasted cash flow. So that those are those are like the, such an essential part of dealing with the expected numbers. Now, against all of that, or or as part of all of that, there is this this also element of of analyzing um, accurately the working capital that's required in this company and making sure that there is um, a real strong estimate of required working capital because that's what's going to spin off our our equity value portion of going from enterprise value plus excess working capital minus debt equals the equity value. So if we don't do anything on the target working capital side here, then we're also totally missing a big element with a lot of closely held companies. Frankly, there are some companies that have just an incredible amount of excess working capital. Not a lot. The company doesn't have debt because the company's owner just keeps plowing money back into the company. Um, there are extremes on that other side too. There are some companies that just literally have just the bare bones working capital to keep going every year. They strip the company comes, the the shareholders take out as much as they can. And those are just things that have to be analyzed here. Now that's going to let us settle in on, on providing a realistic estimate that's been totally vetted so that the net number that we get done on the valuation model with is going to address not, not only the shareholder to not worry, be happy kind of thing. Um, but also the key people, because what's happening too is, is if you do the forecast absolutely correctly, and let me just say what that looks like, it absolutely correctly needs to be done, not by the forecast. First off, has to be done by the company. I, as a sell side advisor, 
am not doing the forecast for my client because that is a question the trustee is going to ask you later down the road who prepared this forecast. It needs to be done by the company. Now, if it's done only by the owner, then that's going to be a problem because the owner may not see all the different elements and they may be you know, super optimistic and maybe they're not realistic about some things. It's not that their forecast would be incorrect. It's just not good enough for what we need. We need that to be beat up by all those people on that team. And what that does on the don't worry, be happy part is that it actually brings the key people involved and says, hey, let's let's do some checks and balances here to make sure that we are not as the key people, depending on the role of the owner going forward, we're not put in a position where this is not achievable. And the reason that's important is because when we fast forward into the ESOP plan, what we're anticipating is that there's going to be a a potential SAR plan, a stock appreciation rights plan for those key people. And if that is not done, um, if those EBITDA projections are going to be way out, you know, way out of left field, then the key people now are not going to be, you know, in a position where that's even achievable because the SAR plan is going to be very, very common, very typically going to have a vesting requirement for based on performance, performance is going to be based on a metric of hitting those targets, those EBITDA targets, actually a little bit more than the EBITDA targets, to be honest. So, so that's, again, part, part of that is that that structure is super helpful um, as we start to kind of build out both of those things at the same time. And so if the forecast gets vetted through that process that I talked about, it's going to have, it's going to make, I believe, the key people that are going to be responsible to achieve those numbers, especially giving their input into the forecast, it's going to make them have more um, consensus about around the idea that this is actually um, healthy for everybody and good, right? So that's going to help the shareholder feel happy. That's going to help the, the key people feel happy as we move in. You know, part of this process too, and I feel like makes people happy is the sense of, Hey, we don't we don't want to get into feasibility at all unless we are solid on that very first step. Because my my advice to you is that if the number is not going to work for the shareholder, um, then why even move on, right? And if that number works for the shareholder, but it doesn't work for the key managers based on that forecast, then why move on, right? We need to have a consensus in what we're going to be doing in this topic is just kind of stopping doing this work, stopping, build consensus, educate, make sure everybody's good. And then green light, let's move on to the next step. And so as we do that, um, one of the things that we are doing also this very same time is planning what the roles and responsibilities of people are going forward. And so before we completely leave that forecast, one of the questions needs to be, what is the role of the owner going forward? And it can be a lot, a lot of things. So here's the here's the beauty of an ESOP. We're going to talk about don't worry, be happy, because in this in this sense of planning an ESOP, they're going to have what we call flexibility in options along that. So if, you know, flexibility at, at the almost the extreme level of flexibility in this type of of environment, as opposed to 
um, a strategic buyer saying, hey, you know, you're going to work here 12 months and you're out of here. They're going to have absolute flexibility, um, almost like a yoga person who can just stretch any different direction, right? I don't do yoga, but the point is, is that we can design that. Now, this is before we get to feasibility, what we need to do is really design that from an owner comp standpoint and build that back into the cash flows. If the cash, if the company's owner is going to phase out over a five-year window, maybe we're going to come back and say, all right, their owner comp is coming down. If we have to replace that owner comp with somebody doing what they're doing, then we're going to build that into the forecasted model. Um, there might be within this also forecast a management incentive plan that is going to need to be funded with additional cash that we don't, that we haven't had to do in the historicals, right? So again, what we're, we're contemplating here is to make sure that forecasted cash flow works for everybody involved. And, and this is never a kind of a perfect process. I don't want to kind of lead anybody into thinking, oh, They'll do it exactly right. We will come back to this sometimes after we've done this first iteration, move into the feasibility model, and then come back and say, you know what? We really do need to, to think a little deeper, a little harder about who's doing what in the company. Let's go ahead and, and you know, move some cash flow out you know, into uh, more of a management incentive plan concept and get more people, um, the high level people maybe paid a little bit more. So those are things that, that that need to be kind of constructed and planned and going back and forth. And that's and again, that's why I am huge believer of having a workable model that everybody can understand. I am um, absolutely a critic of of models that are just beautiful PowerPoint presentations from from advisors that want to give you what everything that they know about ESOPs and not necessarily help you plan your ESOP. And I and I say that is again just very candidly like I think that that happens a lot in our industry because the advisors if they're going to make you pay extra, you know, all this money at a, as a success fee, then you know kind of behind all that there there's like this intimidation process that they're they're putting you through which makes me um just be more motivated to do this, these podcasts because I think it's wrong ultimately, you know, to try to intimidate people with, with knowledge. So if they do these really, you know, these beautiful graphs and all these different complex things, which behind all that are their models. Right. So, so what I'm saying is I think really you're better suited to have some ugly gross model that, but, but gives you good information that you, that, that you with your sell side team can really, you know, manipulate in different directions to make sure you're getting the pros and cons of every possible scenario. So as we as we land in that, what you're noticing here is is we're actually building consensus so that everybody in this process is happy. And as we move into the feasibility model, we're going to do the same thing. And we're leveraging the idea of an ESOP to kind of create this flexible environment around planning for everybody involved. And so that you may have a very definitive succession plan written. You may have no succession plan written. And you might have something in the middle of that. So what we can do is use the flexibility as a benefit to make sure that that is part of your, of your go-forward plan. Now, when we get to fe uh, feasibility, the main thing here is that we want um, to really identify three to four major things. And the first part is going back to the shareholder side and saying, how am I going to get my money out of this? How am I going to monetize? Now we came up with and we agreed to the numbers. How am I going to actually get my money? How much money should I be able to get out of the deal? 
at the front end? How much am I going to be waiting on? And we've done a lot of different podcasts on bank financing. So there's a lot of background there. And the main thing I wanted to kind of point in here is that that's an anxiety point for the shareholder and it needs to be dealt with. And not only does the financing need to be dealt with in, in the feasibility model, but also the the in you know the the individual fiscal periods going forward need to be dealt with so that the owner and the shareholders can understand how much cash flow are they going to get out of this after tax every single fiscal period. And whether they do a partial ESOP or a hundred percent ESOP, which again gets modeled here. And whether they do an S-Corp and a C-Corp or whether they use the 1042 or they keep the S-Corp election, this needs to be modeled in this in this feasibility model. Now, they can look at this scenario as an S-Corp and then they can look at this scenario as a C-Corp. From their perspective, is it installment sale income? What is their tax basis? How much are they going to pay in taxes every year as much as they get out? So the the, the emphasis here that we're making is that we want the shareholder or shareholders to not worry and be happy about the, the process of going through this. Is that going to work for them? You know, if they are selling 100%, is that enough cash flow for them coming out of the deal between what they got in bank financing and what they're getting on their interest rate for their note and ultimately what they're going to get for their seller note is subordinated? Is that enough after tax for them? Secondly, is the company in a position? Um, with cash flow, the stability of cash flow going forward to manage and with the tax benefits as an S or the tax benefits of, as a C, are they in a position to manage the uh, debt service that's going to be required of them? And if if it's super thin, where like, wow, there's no room on the forecast to go down, then as a stress test, the advisor should come back and caution, hey, we need to restructure this. This is not going to work. So, so what's happening here is, is back to the same thing. We're, we're, not, we're not just modeling everything out for the purposes of modeling. We're actually business planning it out to make sure that the transaction is going to work for everybody um, with what we know and what, what's knowable. And as times change, you know, we might be in the middle of a transaction and we expected something better and we have, we have a down year, right? So we need to update the models for those kind of things. So here we're actually preparing um, so that the company doesn't have to worry and the company is in a position to, to benefit from the ESOP. You know, and then specific to the company, the key people that are, that are managing it. So they feel comfortable with the forecast. And now they also feel comfortable with the structure of the debt that's being put on the balance sheet because there we need to hit the, um, X amount of cash flow each year to make sure that that debt gets paid off, you know, within the the planned time frame. Now, this is where again I come back to the idea of straddling the company's cash flow with all of this additional debt with like these very complex capital raises. And what's what can happen is is that we can be basing a lot of this on on fusing cash flow or capital. And raising capital in the model for a very high level growth strategy. And we're trying to now merge in the idea of, of owners leaving, replacing that with new capital and trying to hit some big, big targets. Now, that's where I'm saying it's not, I'm not saying that that's a bad idea. I'm saying that if that's, um, if you're mel- merging all of this together and trying to use the tax benefits of an ESOP 
to be a very solid like growth plan and you're stair-stepping up into this maybe higher multiple for a, a strategic buyer to come in by the company, there's more risk to that transaction, right? And I think it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. And, I, and I'd be careful. I just want to be careful to say this. If everybody understands it, but if you're putting as owners, your people in a position where they don't really understand it and there's, and they're racked with all this additional debt because you're, you're trying to do this big play, then I think that's where, um, this thing could get out of whack pretty soon. And, and I, that's why I'm saying at the front end of, the, of this podcast, um, I don't know if, if, if it's reasonable to try to use all of these manipulations for, with an ESOP to try to accomplish these other financial goals. If it, if it's truly the right thing to do at the end of the day. And I, I can't take every single scenario out there and say, this is um, wrong legitimately, but I do know that this creates anxiety for your team. And I do know that that creates potential disruption for everything else to, to, you know, strain the organization and, and push it to a, to another level. Meanwhile, trying to, to tell the employees, Hey, you're getting this great deal with these ESOP shares and all that. So what we want to do here, if I just said in general, if there was a bell curve, I think everything should probably fit on average in what I'm saying, a reasonable debt structure, with a reasonable forecast, with reasonable cash flow that can be reasonably paid in a, in a time period where nobody's, you know, really freaking out. And we get to use the tax benefits of an ESOP to help support additional cash flow to do that. So I think those are, those are things that are going to be balanced between the owner's goals and the key people's goals and making sure that we're, we're kind of in that right, you know, sweet spot of what we, of where we want to be. Keep in mind, we're really early in the whole ESOP process. What we're talking about here is is planning, building consensus, and basically trying to eliminate a lot of the anxiety in this whole process. We haven't yet gotten into this concept of how do we explain this to to the employees, right? We're not even there yet because we're so pre-ESOP. But I do want to say at this point, one thing that needs to be contemplated here, and I've seen this with some clients where they're, they're much more focused at the employee level in this stage of things, it does need to be thought pro- that does need to be thought about. And like, for instance, if this was all done right, right. And out of the feasibility model, we're not only going to model out the cash flow of the company, we're not only going to model out the inflows and the tax, you know, the full tax benefits to the shareholders. We're also going to want to model out the insight note here under the 404 25% payroll limit. And what we're trying to do is figure out what's a reasonable benefit to the employees. And if this were all coming together, well, what would it look like for the next five to 10 years for your employees? And how much, you know, for instance, if I had this payroll roster, how much would they actually get in new stock? What would the potential value of that stock be over the next five to 10 years? That's a that's another part of the whole the whole thing. And that's and that's why I keep kind of crossing my fingers as I talk and say, you know what, I feel like I'm doing the tenant movie thing where everything kind of has to fit together. Right. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want the employees to also not have anxiety. I want them to be happy. Don't worry, be happy. This is going to be great for you guys. Right. And it, the more, the cleaner the deal, the better we can explain it. Um, the more we've planned and built this around everybody's interest, then I think you can do that, you know, in a way that that is solid in, and in a way that can become ultimately a highly successful 
company that's owned by an ESOP that has a long-term benefit plan that benefits the employees, the key people, the shareholders, the um, and then as a company, the community of which they, they live and contribute back to. And then as a customer group, as a as the company builds a value within their customer base, continuing to um, build value with their customers, all of that fits together. And this, this is one of the things as, as it all comes together that I think encapsulates the goal of helping everybody to build a the most optimum environment for the company going forward, a very solid ESOP company that the ideal here is that everybody's happy. And that's really the the gist of this podcast today. And I think those, as we broke all, all those pieces down, I do hope that that makes sense to you. I know I'm treading on, you know, other types of ways to go about this. And maybe, maybe that, you know, is what it is. And you just have to kind of like, well, let that kind of marinate. If that's new to you, then great. I would just have you investigate that deeper, right? Don't take my word for it, but that's what I've seen in the deals. And that's what I've seen in the industry. And so a lot of this, you know, a lot of the podcast, you know, that I try to get to is like, what am I seeing and how can I help you to be looking at it, you know, with a bigger picture. So hopefully that helps you today. Um, thank you guys for listening so much today. We can go to our website at journeytoanesop.com. Check us out for other podcasts and we will look forward to our next step on our journey to an ESOP.